This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. Brad Chow and the Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust would like to acknowledge and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today, we're talking about extreme plants. Okay, not those extreme plants, but these plants are pretty amazing in their own right. Plants are able to grow in places that even humans aren't interested in. Cliff faces, high or low temperatures, high altitudes, in changing water levels, just to name a few. But what adaptations do plants need to survive in these environments? And why are they there in the first place? That's what we're investigating today on Branch Out. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and I'll be guiding you through this journey from houseplants to cliff faces. Let's start with some plants most of us will be familiar with. Succulents. Okay, so basically a succulent um, is a plant that's typically from an arid environment with lower rainfall, higher temperatures, things such as a desert as well. That's Madeline Arnott-Bryce, horticulturalist and middle garden supervisor at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. She says the succulents have some of the most amazing adaptations. So it's a, a plant with thick, fleshy and swollen stems and leaves that it's adapted to dry environments. So there are actually 60 different plant families that contain succulents. Another adaptation of the succulent is it actually photosynthesizes in a different way to normal plants. So it uses something called CAM photosynthesis. CAM photosynthesis is a heat-stressed plant's superpower. Basically, it allows the succulent to photosynthesize at night rather than during the day. Which is adapted to over the years to stop evapotranspiration. So basically it photosynthesizes during the day and harvests sunlight, but then and stores the sunlight, but then does its key photosynthetic processes overnight so it can open its stomates overnight and not open them during the day and lose more water. So that's unique to succulents and cacti. Yeah, it is, they're quite extensive and they're quite advanced in their adaptations to um, their environment. Uh, things like cacti are the next level of sophisticated because they also have other adaptations like their spines. But yeah, they're, they're also very good at conserving water and almost all cacti are succulents. Some clues as to how succulents survive in harsh environments is in the leaves. Succulents, you'll notice like the waxy surface of the leaf. A lot of the leaves aren't true leaves and they're actually just stems so they can photosynthesize from their stems as well. And a lot of the ones in people's households also, you can easily propagate them. So if a leaf drops off from your household plant and you see it growing next to, <laughs> next to your plant in the soil, um, you'll, you'll get a, a second plant, which is basically a clone. An extreme plant you probably have at home is a cactus. They've got that fleshy body, which is actually its stem, plus it's got spines. Cactus have spines and it's produced from specialised structures called areoles. Um, as well as the spines, areoles give rise to the flowers, which, which are usually tubular and multi-petaled. Cactus stems are often ribbed or fluted, which allows them to expand and contract easily for quick water absorption after rain, followed by long drought 
period. So that's where you got all the really interesting shapes and sizes. Chlorophyll is really important for photosynthesis. It's actually responsible for the green pigment in plants' leaves and it helps the plant absorb sunlight. Some succulents have this amazing ability to manipulate how much chlorophyll, so that green colour, they have present to slow down photosynthesis when there's other limiting factors, so things like not enough water or not enough light. Um, a lot of the time if you do see cacti or succulent with the colours like the reds or the yellows or oranges, it's often because they're starved of water and nutrients which is a little bit sad, but that's what takes the chlorophyll away. And then also um, in cold conditions as well, they do that to store the chlorophyll for when it is sunnier, and then they'll bring the chlorophyll back out. The aliodendron trees, which is called the quiver tree, in times of stress, it can actually amputate its own branches off. So basically just, you know, will drop its own branch if it's too stressed. Okay, so we've established that succulents and cacti have some impressive adaptations for their extreme environments. But what about other extreme plants in other environments? I sat down with Dr. Russell Barrett to ask about some plants he had encountered in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. Cliff faces are a pretty full-on place to try to live. How does a plant even end up on a cliff face to start with? In many ways, they probably end up there by accident in the first instance. But cliff faces are, are, are quite an interesting one. Obviously, there's very little soil there, so um, there's very little for plants to cling to in the first place. They generally have to have roots that are good at following cracks in the rocks both to hold on and to, to get any moisture. And they're also highly sun exposed. And so the plants that live there have to have certain physiological adaptations, whether that's waxy coatings on their leaves or very reduced leaves uh, to minimize water loss in very exposed both to sun and wind conditions. And so that limits a lot of things in the first place. But once they're there, they're then protected from other, other forces, uh, particularly, say, fire, because there's so little vegetation on a cliff face, it's very rare that a fire can, can establish or, or cover a cliff face because there generally isn't enough vegetation there for flames to move from one spot to another. And the other thing about cliff faces is because there's so little water, um, the plants that can adapt to living with the little water then actually face a very stable environment because most of the water that does fall during a rainfall event on a cliff runs away very quickly. So if you can survive with a little bit of water that is caught in the cliff, that means the actual rainfall can vary a huge amounts from year to year, but the plants only need a little bit in any one year to actually survive. And so the long-term persistence of plants once they've adapted to that extreme environment um, can be uh, quite phenomenal. Um, and the other aspect of, of large cliff faces is that they can actually uh, act as water storage areas in their own right, in that the cracks and fissures, I guess, behind the cliff face can actually be storing water so a plant's roots can actually follow back through these fissures um, a long distance back into the cliff face and tap into water that we would have no idea is there. That's very impressive. <laughs> I've heard you talk previously about resurrection plants. They sound 
kind of like zombie plants. Are they? <laughs> are they like zombie plants? In some ways, they are. So the human body is variously between 40 and 70 percent water, and most plant tissues are similarly somewhere between 30 and 70 percent water. And so, from that perspective, there's a lot, lot of um, similarities. And but if we turn to how well we can respond to changes in water availability. Um, people die at somewhere between 15 and 25 percent water loss. Um, resurrection plants are plants that can reduce their water content down to less than one percent, which is just a phenomenal reduction in, in water content. And the amount of, I guess, vital systems they're shutting down, I guess it's, the, to think of it in human terms, it's the equivalent of successfully being able to cryopreserve yourself um, with with no external um, uh, tools to assist you in that. It's just shutting down all your systems and keeping them in, I guess, a, a non-functional but still operational state, waiting until conditions are suitable again. Um, and so the idea that plants can be that dry and then respond when water is available is, is, is quite incredible. Could you tell us a bit about party grass? So party grass is a, a very like, very intriguing grass and it's one that's poorly known. It's a, a genus called Macrera and it's only found in Australia and all its relatives are found in Australia. It's a very unique lineages of grasses and they're in places that have very, very little soil. Uh, these grasses have actually got the ability to re-green within hours of receiving water going from less than 1% moisture content up to uh, 50, 60, 70% water content in a matter of hours and go from brown through orange to bright green and they can flower within a day. Wow. Just their, their rate of response when water is available is phenomenal. And so it's for that reason, the fact that they can re-green so quickly that I, I've given them the nickname party grass because I think they'd be the ideal thing for the Australian environment where we, we all want to conserve water. We don't want to be out there every second day watering your lawn, but you want a nice green lawn if you're going to have, have friends over for, for a barbecue or something. So if we could stick these party grass in our backyard, we don't have to worry about watering it until we've got people coming over and then just go out the day before and water it. And there you are, a lovely green lawn. <laughs> That's so perfect. If you were going to try it, would do you think the grass would be able to grow in a backyard? The challenge probably is growing it and how resilient it would be to things like people walking on it. Um, those aren't things that it's necessarily experiences naturally, um, but it's not to say they're, they're characteristics that, that couldn't be bred into it. Um, one of the other interesting things it does to survive on the rocky areas that um, it grows in is it actually grow, um, grows on stilts. So the roots actually grow down from the plant and push the, the actual plant growing part of the plant up above the rock surface. So it commonly sits five or more centimetres above the rock surface. So when it is dry, those rocks can get baking hot and they probably approach 100 degrees. So they don't want the growing parts of the plant to be sitting there at 100 degrees. And just by lifting up five centimetres, that can make a temperature change of, of easily 20 degrees as to what the plant is actually experiencing. Um, so it forms sort of these cushioned mats um, and so to turn that into a lawn certainly has some challenges um, but it's not to say it's not worth trying <laughs> and, it, and it could at least work as, as de decorative edges. I'm sold, I like it. <laughs>
For plants that grow on top of, you know, outcrops like granite outcrops or out on sandstone, the water must get quite hot in the sun. How do species deal with that? You know, when you're like walking along and you find a puddle that's been there for a while and it feels warm, that can't be good for a plant. That's one of the adaptations that the plants that live in these environments have to adapt to. Um, so one of the uh, environments I've spent a lot of time studying is small rock holes on these rocky pavements found across the Kimberley sandstones. And these rock, rock holes are commonly only a metre across and they're usually only five to 10 centimetres deep. So again, incredibly ephemeral environments. They've generally only got water in them. Um, when it's raining, they generally dry out within a week if the rainfall stops. Um, evaporation rates across the Kimberley are incredibly high so these pools do dry out very quickly so again you have to be an extreme plant to actually live in these tiny rock holes but there are a number of species that have adapted to do exactly that so some of those have fleshy roots and so they can withstand drying out just by storing water in their roots others have incredibly quick life cycles and so they just they produce seeds very quickly the seeds rest in the bottom of the, the the rock hole when it's dry and grow very quickly when the rains come back. Um, but as you say, these rocks are exposed um, to very high temperatures from the sun. Um, daytime temperatures in the wet season are commonly 40 plus degrees to start with. You add, add the sun on these very shallow waters, um, the temperatures can get quite high. And one of the species we, we looked at up there is this beautiful portulaca, which is still unnamed, but it has these brilliant vivid pink flowers and most of the plant is submerged under the water and it's just the top of the flowers which pokes up through the water and presents this landing platform that the butterflies go crazy for and so it's this really beautiful sight um, but in, in picking some of these we noticed how warm the water was and so I took a thermometer up one time and the, these plants were flowering in water which was 60 degrees mm. <laughs> which if you put that in your bath you'd find that rather uncomfortable yeah. but these plants are happily flowering and, and existing um, doing their thing in that that extreme temperature of water it really does give you some perspective when you can picture just how harsh a place like the Kimberley would be for a plant you know like visiting the Kimberley just walking around it's like oh sunscreen hat plants are almost like having to find their own solutions just like we do the Kimberley itself, could you describe what that environment is like to work in? The Kimberley has plenty of challenges. Um, access to the right areas at the right time of year is generally the biggest challenge. It really is one of the remotest parts of Australia. There are very few roads. And if you're studying plants, the most interesting time to be out there is the wet season. Most of the roads in the Kimberley are still dirt roads and they're just completely closed in the wet season. Um, the, the, the rainfall during that season is very high, um, but it basically all falls within a three month period in most years. And so it's a very intense period of rainfall followed by very intense dry. And most people going up there, going up, go up there in the dry season. And a lot of people have the perception of the Kimberley as a desert area because during the dry season it can appear so barren and particularly after fire when the landscape's blackened a lot of the vegetation's um, cleared through the understory but you go up in the wet season it's a totally different story the grass can be 10 feet high above your head brilliant green such lush vegetation water just pouring off off the rocks so I mean, waterfalls everywhere 
and so it really is a land of contrast between the seasons and so all the plants up there have to adapt to this contrast the extreme abundance of water in the wet season and the total absence of water in the dry season and so that that really does present a lot of challenges and really drives the composition of most of the species up there. Wow, so you really have so many factors to consider when going to do field work in the Kimberley. I imagine cliff face species are particularly difficult to study. It can be certainly challenging. A lot of, because there are so few roads or most of the roads are closed at the time we want to go out there, a lot of our studies done by helicopter. Um, the advantage of that is you can fly past a cliff face and actually see plants growing on the cliff face but we've got numerous locations where we can see the plants on the cliff face and even with a very good knowledge of the floor in the area there's a number of things we still don't know what they are and we cannot find somewhere we can actually reach these plants um, and so there's a lot of things out there we know they exist but i can't tell you what they are we just know that they're almost certainly new species that are only found on these cliff faces they're probably highly localized um, and there's there's different places where cliff specialists are, are quite well known um, and I guess they're better known than some of the smaller cliffs but some places like Kakadu that have been fairly well studied and there's a lot of species that grow on cliff faces under relatively low overhangs that are easier to access uh, with ladders or the like it, um, sometimes um, but knowing that there are numerous cliff species in the Northern Territory we'd specifically gone looking for cliff face uh, species in the Kimberley and there's a group of baronias in Kakadu that only found a, a cliff faces and, and we spent about 15 years scouring cliff faces looking for baronias in the Kimberley and we did eventually find one that we named Baronia cremnophila, meaning cliff lover um, and it's got this thick corky bark at the base and just grows out of these cracks on the rock and it's, we're known for two cliff faces just a, kil a couple of kilometres apart and so knowing that things occur in one environment with all these cliffs available we knew there was going to be more things out there Knowing the plants are there is one thing, physically getting to them is another. Um, and, and obviously abseiling presents its own challenges, of just, even just getting abseiling gear into these locations and then having the time to get down to check out something which may or may not be, be new. Oh, extreme plants calling for the most extreme botany I've ever heard of. Thinking about how with things like climate change, we are going to see more extreme weather conditions and climatic conditions. Do you think that these extreme plants could teach us anything going forward? The fact that they've had to make adaptations to how they grow in order to adapt to the extreme environment they've already experienced, and particularly the fact that they commonly have to face quite extreme dehydration, means they've probably got some fairly unique chemistry developed in order to cope with that mechanism and the chemistry behind that is something which is likely to be really important to understand because the genes regulating that chemistry are often um, common to uh, a lot of other plants and it's whether or not those genes are switched on can determine or at what point those genes are switched on can, and how quickly can determine how other plants respond to stress. So they're generally stress response genes um, and its response time can be the critical factor. So understanding what those genes are, what the on flow on chemistry is, are things which might help us to understand 
what other plants can or can't adapt to more extreme fluctuations than they're currently experiencing and may even have potential for crop plants that we may be able to introduce some of these genes into crop plants to allow them to survive far greater fluctuations or to be more water efficient in how they're growing and thus allow us to continue cropping areas if rainfall say drops off or it might be alternate chemistry which speeds up the life cycle and maturation cycle for producing grains and things so we can grow crops in shorter windows while water is available um, if seasons get contracted for example. Thinking about plants like the baronia that are able to grow on the side of a cliff, obviously they start as just a little seed. How are they growing? How is the seed managing to stay there and not just get blown away? And then how does this little seedling manage to hold on tight enough not just to be yeah blown away or eaten by something going past? How is that early development, how does that play out? That's probably one of the uh, keys as to what species actually get onto these cliff faces in the first place and also how they stay there. And so the answers are specific and unique to every species that grow there, but probably some of the common patterns are, I guess there's, there's probably three, three things that um, affect how they can get there. They can either blow there in the wind so if the wind is can blow your seed around then it's no problem to land on a cliff face um, and if your seeds are dispersed by wind you probably produce a lot of seed and then by random chance you hopefully land up in in the suitable environment um, another way might be to have something that's actually attractive to ants um, a food body that we call an eliasome and so haven't have um, insects actually transport your seeds where they're after the food but they're just going to tuck the seed away and, and so they they'll often live in association with the rocks build their nests in the cracks in the rocks and so if they have an interest in the seeds the seeds might fall to the bottom of a cliff but then be brought up back up by the insects and so um, but there's limited plants that have such um, food bodies on their seeds but it is interesting that a number of the species growing cliff faces do have that feature. Um, so that could be one of the important factors for a number of cliff face species. And the other thing is, a lot of these cliff faces, when it does rain, you do often get water sheeting and flowing over these rock faces. And so if you can keep your seeds close to the cliff face, then the water is able to wash your seeds from one plant down to another crack somewhere else and where it might be able to establish. And so one of the best examples I know of that is a small plant called a Lindernia that only grows in a few, few over, rock overhangs in the Kununurra area in the North Kimberley. And it actually grows on these rock faces which are upside down and it sticks its flowers down out into the air um, on the top of these cliff faces to, to maximise the chance that insects coming past are going to visit oh. these flowers. And so they're nice and prominently displayed but then once the flowers have been pollinated, the flower stalk actually turns around and presses itself hard against the rock face. So then it is up against the rock face, so sheet water flowing down can then easily wash the seeds out wow. of the seed capsule and further down the rock face and hopefully into another rock fissure so more plants can grow. 
That is just completely mind-blowing that a plant could adapt to something so specific. It's just amazing. There wouldn't be that many pollinators up on a cliff face either. Are there any cool examples of pollination strategies? We actually know very little about the pollination strategies and, and pollinators in general, particularly in the Kimberley. Um, there is a huge abundance of insect diversity up there, um, but it's uh, apart from common things like butterflies, um, we know it's very poorly known. Um, and the time it takes to observe these these things again <laughs> is very very challenging. So we have it's just really isolated records. And it's almost by chance um, they actually can discover these pollinators. Russell, you obviously know a lot about these species, but throughout our chat have mentioned a few times there's gaps in our knowledge. So what are some of the things you think should be research focuses in the future for the topic of extreme environment plants? I guess the probably the important thing is to understand what the, the limits of these species really is. And so how, how at risk are they from climate change or other factors? Um, and so because we know so little about most of the species that grow on these, they are challenging. These are species which are going to need dedicated research programs to really understand what their adaptations are. Um, but I think it's important, and because they're so unique, um, they do become really good examples that can help us understand um, resilience in particular in, in plants in general. Um, and often because they are common genes involved, but the expression is so pronounced or common in these plants that grow in extreme environments, they can be really good model species for understanding function in more common species. Um, and so I think there's a real value in doing these dedicated studies, both to understand how these plants do actually function, which might give us keys to how, how more common plants and, and crop plants function, but also what the risk is to those plants going forward to populations, um, what their genetic diversity is, how much their seed is actually able to travel around, um, and what, so what their potential diversity is and how much disturbance might impact these species. Um, and I guess one example that, that's usefully illustrates that is a tiny um, aquatic plant that found, found in these Kimberley rock holes where we did some genetic studies looking at populations over a range of about 300 kilometres. And these rock holes can be a metre apart or they can be tens of kilometres apart. And the genetic data we got back showed that the likelihood of dis the seed dispersing from a rock hole a few metres apart to, to the next rock hole was the same probability as the seed dispersing to a rock hole 100 kilometres away. Just the rate of dispersal between rock holes is so low and so random um, that it really is incredible just the, how rare these events are and that's reflected in the genetic diversity of the plants. And that again is something we know so little about but that example I think shows how critical it is to understand them if there's going to be any impact on a population what that actually means at a local level and how significant that could be for species. And, you know, you might get to go on a helicopter to get to go explore. Or abseil down a cliff. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Branch Out. Branch Out was produced by me, Rose Kerr. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, I have a special request for you. Please share it with a friend. You can also support the podcast by leaving us a review or subscribing. Next time on Branch Out, we'll be talking about talking about plants. (laughs) You heard that right. We will be discussing science communication of plants. So the way we talk about them and what it means for the people listening.